This morning, Scripture comes to us in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be digging in, beginning in verse 22, following through verse 38, most of Peter's sermon on Pentecost Sunday. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to be both in Acts and we'll also turn to the Psalms as well. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along with the words on the screen as we together hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross." But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing, so we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Almighty God, what a gift it is to be able to meet here in this space, in this time, attentive to your word and the work you're doing in it for us. Lord, use this time for your purposes Remove me from this space so that all that is left is you. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear, our minds that we come to know and understand. Open our hearts that we would feel the power of your word 
And then we pray that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so interesting when you think about all of the images that we are inundated with and all of the messaging around those images. Some of those images uh, are, 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 are conscious messages. They, they articulate something to us that we are well aware of. And then some of those messages are subconscious. And they, they, they teach us certain things about organizations, institutions, or even ourselves that, that, that we are unaware is being sent to us. I'm fascinated by the work and process of branding. Have you ever paid attention to, to brands? to organizations' brands and how they are messaging through those. And the more well-known the brand, the more critical it is that that brand is associated with exactly the, uh, the priorities that the company or the institution is trying to present. We're going to play a little game. We're going to look at a few of these, uh, four of them exact, because I, I think that uh, it, it's interesting for us to really uh, consciously understand what messaging uh, is being portrayed to us. So who do we have first? All right, AT&T. AT&T. Uh, now, what is the message there? That they are global. They are a global communications company. And this is actually a shift. Some of you might remember that AT&T used to be the bell. And that bell was to stand for liberty, was to stand for America. And they were America's communication company. But whenever the, 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 the turn of the 21st century came about, they needed to, to reestablish a different brand because they wanted to be the forefront, on the forefront, of what was going to be take, taking place in global communications. To no longer be restricted to one national identity, but now to be around the world. And they were very intentional. It's not just a circle. Those, those, uh, those bins show momentum and movement, right? And, and, and give it 3D access so that you could see it's a globe, but you could also see that they are about the movement of information around the world. Got me? All right. So what, what else do we have? Oh, do y'all even know what this is? This is a siren, this is, this is one of those mermaids that calls out to you, and then you are, are, are blindly, numbly drawn to it, and you cannot help but, Starbucks, I need it. This happens even in your homes. You see this image in your mind's eye, and you decide that I'm going to leave my house, get my car keys, start my car, drive out my driveway, down the street, and find the Starbucks, get in the drive-thru, and tell them that same thing that you told them the day before, the day before, the day before, the day before, because you cannot live without the call of the siren. Coffee has power. And it's brilliant. They, they, they took a brand of an addictive property and said, we're going to tap into the fact that these folks are addicted. They cannot help themselves. And we're going to make that our brand. Fascinating. What else? All right. So FedEx. I love this one because this is 
subliminal, it's subconscious, it's in the negative. And so if you've never seen it, you are going to be forever changed today because once you see it, you cannot unsee it. But it has always been there in the negative. Do you see it? Between the E and the X, there is an arrow. And so now that you see it, you know they are about moving products. And it's about forward momentum. And they want you to know if you need to move something forward, they're the ones to call. Not someone else, FedEx. And so they don't even tell you explicitly like with the globe. They tell you implicitly in the negative. You're never going to unsee it. And then the last one. Oh, you used to think that if you needed any random item that you couldn't figure out where you were going to get it, you used to think that you were going to go get that at Walmart. You used to think you were going to go to Walmart. But now, now you have Amazon. And they have everything from A to Z. Everything from A to Z. And because they have everything from A to Z, they're going to make you smile. Do you see it? They're going to make you smile. So, so when you're sitting on your couch and you have that revelation, oh, I need, or, or if I could fix, or if I could have, boom, you're going to pull it out. And where do you go? You're going to go to the place that has everything. And you're going to find it on Prime. And you're going to smile because it's going to be there tomorrow. And then you're going to be bankrupt because you don't know how to stop going to Amazon. Amen? God, I wish Amazon did not exist. If I could just not find those things from A to Z, then we would have more money in the bank account. The way that brands work, creating conscious and subconscious information for us to process, is fascinating. But we as the church also have a brand. Not just the church covenant, not just the United Methodist Church, uh, not just Protestants, but there is one brand particularly that extends from denomination to denomination, from country to country, around the world. There's one Christian symbol that has stood the test of time that if someone sees it, it stands for the Christian faith. It's the cross. But I think oftentimes we only consider that the cross is a nice tattoo or uh, something that's a trinket or necklace that we wear around our, our necks. Maybe we hang it uh, from, um, from our, uh, our rearview mirror in our cars, something that, that is just an accessory, but we don't acknowledge or understand the depth of the symbol, and so it is entirely misunderstood or underappreciated. When I was in college, I was with uh, three of my friends, and we uh, were together on Good Friday. We went to Adam Dufour's house in Mansfield, Louisiana. Adam, you might guess with the last name Dufour and being in Louisiana, Adam was Catholic, like, like super Catholic, like Louisiana Catholic, right? Like, and and, and like, like I've been drinking wine at the dinner table since I was nine Catholic. Like this is the kind of Louisiana Catholic he is. And, and so we were there on Good Friday, Got there in the morning, 
uh, really enjoyed our time with his family. And then it came 6 o'clock. And do you know what that meant we were about to do? Louisiana Catholics on Good Friday go to church. They go to Mass. And there was a special Mass that day, as there is evidently in Mansfield, Louisiana, every Good Friday. And the service is called the Veneration of the Cross. Uh, I, I had never seen the veneration of the cross. I'd never, never attended a service of this sort. And, and, and there I was because I was with the Dufours and because I was uh, a, a, a Christian and regular churchgoer. We sat there on the third row, left-hand side, right in front of the pulpit, right? Y'all know what a pulpit is? Okay, so right in front of the pulpit, that's where I sat. And so, so in, in those seats... Uh, I, I was paying really close attention because I, I, I got my bulletin. Y'all know what a bull, bulletin is? I got, I got my bulletin, and the bulletin at the top said Veneration of the Cross. And so that was the name of the service. And I was like, I've never, never seen this. I don't even know what I'm here for. And so, uh, so then the priest started describing what this service was. And we're only like 15 minutes into the service. And, uh, and there was no sermon listed in the bulletin. And so then he, he described that he was going to invite everyone in the church to come one row at a time. And to, to, they, they took the cross and they laid it up against the steps of the chancel. Not the stage, the chancel. Okay, And there it lay right there for all the people. And they were going to let each row come forward and spend as much time as they desire with the cross in prayer meeting with the Lord on Good Friday, the day in which Jesus was crucified. Now, as, as, a, as a good suburban United Methodist, I thought to myself, whoa, I'm not, not really comfortable with this. Uh, I didn't, I, I, I'm, I'm a college student at the time, never seen anything like it. And uh, venerating the cross, is this idolatry, was the question I was asking. Is this idolatry? Is this something that, that, that is so outside of, of my faith that I need to, to get up and walk out? And so I, I, I decide I'm not going to walk out. I'm going to observe what's going on. And, and here goes the first row. Uh, and, and the matriarch of the church, she had blue hair, as the matriarch of the church does. She had blue hair, and she stood up, and she went to the cross, and she knelt by it, and laid against it and was praying. And as she was praying, you could see that she began sobbing. She was weeping, filled with powerful emotion as she was venerating the cross. And, and you could actually see her, her tears stain wet the cross. And as an adult, I think about like, wow, and I'm a more mature Christian, I think about, wow, like, how profound how, a relationship with the reality of Jesus' death that, that, that something awesome is taking place here. But as a college student, I was like, whoo, this is crazy. That's what I was thinking. And so I leaned over to my two Protestant friends that were with me, uh, and, and I said, hey, what are y'all going to do? What are you going to do? And we, like, agree. We're like, are you going to do that? I'll do that. So we all agreed. We're going to do this. And so what we did whenever the third row had time to, to get up and walk up is we, we walked up to the cross, and we just nodded, and then we walked off. That, that, was, that was what we did. 
you know. And, and, and we noticed that that was what some of the back row people did too, but there wasn't any third row people that were doing that. So it was, it, it was definitely out of the norm, but, but I, I think they could tell we were foreigners. And so, uh, and so that's all right. We, we walked up, we nodded, and we went on. And that began to challenge me and still challenge, challenges me today with a with question. Do I understand what the cross means such that I would be able to venerate the cross? Or was it idolatry? I've concluded that, that, that the critical turning point here is about the condition of your own heart. It's about the condition of your heart. Because if you're going up thinking that this cross in and of itself, this, this, this symbol has power of its own, uh, of its own establishing, then, then you're missing the point. But if you dig into God's word and understand the transformative work that takes place in the cross, then you could, you could be transformed yourself. And then when you venerate the cross, what you're doing is you're rejoicing in the power that the cross has over death and you're celebrating something so much greater that was established in Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to do that because I think that, that Peter actually establishes that understanding, that, that identification of the brand of the cross for us in his sermon, the first early church sermon. And he articulates it for us uh, by pointing back and then moving forward. He first points back to David, and, and, and we have to understand why he did that. He's, he's there in Jerusalem, and, and he, is, uh, he is surrounded not just with the apostles and those that receive the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but crowds of Jewish persons that are all around, and they gather together and are witnessing the Spirit baptizing this people. And so he points back to something that they would know and that they would understand, the Jewish faith. And he says, what you're seeing now is not a surprise. What you're seeing now actually was pointed to in Jesus already. And, and, and we could see that all the way back through the patriarchs, including David, to whom God made a covenant. And so he turns our attention to, to Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. If you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to turn there together. Uh, Peter quotes it from memory in his sermon, but we're going to hear directly from the psalmist, from David, so we can see what he was talking about, what his, uh, what his approach was, and then we'll better understand how Peter connects it to the cross. Are you with me? So Psalm 16, it's verse 8 through 11, and we're going to take it little by little, uh, but we have to go forward to see what he's talking about in order to go backwards to, to catch his state of mind. All right, so here we go. In verse 8, it begins, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is David writing, therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure. Okay, so that's his state of being. We'll come back to that. Because, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. 
So David is here and he's dwelling on death. He's dwelling on his own mortality uh, as, as we humans over the course of our lives are known to do. Maybe we have a near-death experience. Maybe we experience the death of a loved one. Maybe we are concerned about our own mortality because of the circumstances that are going around, i.e. a pandemic. Surprise. And so if you're considering death, the question is, how did David consider that death? Was he concerned with whether or not he would be abandoned to eternal death, whether his body would decay or not? And as he's considering these things, death, mortality, decay... He articulates for us what his approach is, how he enters in. And there in in verse 9, he talks about the condition of his heart, the condition of his tongue, and the condition of his body, his heart, how he's feeling, uh, what his emotional connection is to what's going on, his tongue, how he's going to articulate that, how he's going to testify to that, what, what his outward spoken, uh, spoken relationship is with death, and then his body, how he enters into the world, what he carries with him out in the world. And it would be so easy for us to hear David articulate a message that maybe we've, we've expressed in our own heart, in our own prayers. Maybe you've authentically encountered the truth of your mortality, the reality of death and decay, and maybe you have articulated, said something in prayer to God that sounded like, my heart is full of sorrow. My tongue is paralyzed with the reality of despair. My body trembles in terror. I think most of us at one point or another when we're considering death, that is is the framework, the lens through which we see these things. My heart is filled with sorrow. My tongue is paralyzed in pain. My my body trembles in terror. But that is not what David says. That's not the message that David proclaims. Did you hear how exactly opposite David articulates his relationship, his understanding of death, decay, and mortality? He says, my heart is glad. Glad. That's preposterous. My tongue rejoices. You rejoice in considering death? My body, my body will rest secure, is at peace. Gladness, rejoicing, peace. What a profound flip that is. And why? Why does he approach it in this way? Why does he orient his speech with such confidence and conviction? 
so as to say that, that he knows that he will not be abandoned, that God will not abandon him to death, that death will not have the final say, that his body cannot, in fact, decay. How does he know that there is, an, that there is eternity with God at God's right hand available for him? How does he even know that that eternity will, in fact, be pleasurable, eternal pleasures in verse 11? When you put all of these things together, you see that he has confidence in eternity, confidence in God's sovereign authority, confidence, confidence in God's, God's power, and yet, and yet we wonder, how can I have that as well? The answer is in, in the second passage that Peter quotes from uh, from the psalmist, from David. I'm going to read it from, uh, from Acts 2, uh, verse 34 and 35. And I want you to catch this turn. This, 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 we'll miss it. We'll miss it so easily. But I want you to catch this turn. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, get this. This is in Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. Then he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, the first time I read that, if you were following, if you were tracking, you probably thought that, that oh, this is another one of those moments where David is complaining about his enemies and, and, and he hears from God that God is going to take care of his enemies for him, right? And that, that, that his enemies are actually going to be his foot, footstool, that, that his feet are going to rest on his enemies, now, that's, that's woven throughout the Psalms. We hear that often. But that's not what Psalm 110 says. That's not what we just read. Because what we just read says that the Lord, God Almighty, said to my Lord, my Messiah, my Savior, the one that is promised to me from generation to generation, the one that will sit on my throne eternally, that one, my Lord Jesus, will have God's enemies as his footstool. David, generations before it took place, knew that God was going to provide the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And that that Lord would have power over even death. That Lord would have power over death. And so how does Peter connect this to the cross? You know, I started with the cross, then we went to death, and we went to, to the psalmist connection. So, so, so get this, twice over, twice over, uh, Peter connects the people that are hearing this sermon with, uh, with their experience of the cross, and then he talks about the transforming work uh, of the cross. So first in verse, uh, verse 23, and then we're going to go to verse 36. 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan of foreknowledge. And then get this. And you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. He clearly places all of us in that space that you nailed him to the cross. 
This wasn't something that, that, that you were outside of. This is something that you participated in. Hear this from 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He puts us there. He says, he says you were there when Jesus was betrayed in the garden. Whenever he was in that garden on the Mount of Olives and, and, and he was arrested, you bore witness that when they took him at night. You were there whenever Pilate gathered the crowds in his courtyard and said, who do you want to deliver? And they said, no, crucify Jesus. You were there as Jesus took his cross and carried it down the road to, guess, uh, to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And you were there as they nailed his hands into the cross. You were there as they hung him on the tree. You were there as he died. This was you. And so Peter puts them there, puts them in the midst of it, shows their activity and responsibility to Jesus' death. But he doesn't leave them hanging. He shows that the cross no longer is an image. It's no longer an image of despair, of punishment, of death. Of judgment, it is now transformed. You know, you and I, we, we, we might not grasp deeply enough what the image of the cross really is. So I'm going to give you two images so that you can, you can let it sink in for just a moment. For, for you, the cross should first mean something along the lines of, The guillotine, judgment, punishment, brutal, painful death, or maybe the electric chair, judgment, punishment, brutal, painful death. That's the cross. That's the cross. That's the cross until Jesus was nailed to the cross. That's the cross until Jesus was hung on the cross and breathed his last after he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died. But God, but God, but God did not Leave him there. Hear what Peter says about the cross in verse 24. But God did not leave Jesus on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because, because it was impossible. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Do you hear that? 
Do you hear that? That the cross is now not about death. It's about eternal life. The cross is not about pain and loss. It's about joy and forgiveness. It's about healing and restoration. The cross is now entirely transformed. So it's not some trinket or accessory that we wear on our bodies or on our necks. But now it's something that we are entirely immersed in as a transforming image of God's grace through Jesus Christ. The cross represents victory. There's victory in the cross. And so, 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 so you and I could, could gather together and we could venerate the cross because the condition of our heart is such that, that we would go to that space and, and we would understand that this cross had one, one mean, means one purpose. It was for death and destruction, but God transformed it once and for all through Jesus for you and for me. And now that we have that victory... We can celebrate that as well. Brothers and sisters, Peter points to the cross and says, everything changed there. And the people of God, who weren't yet even the people of God, heard this message and they were cut to the heart, it said. The word says that they, that they were they were broken as they understood their participation in Jesus' death. But they were struck by his victory and they said, what can we do? How can we respond? And Peter gave a very simple message. It's for them on that day 2,000 years ago and it's for us today here in this room as well. If we want that victory in the cross, what do we do? Repent. We were walking in our sin. We are walking in our sin. Let's turn from that and now walk in the way that leads to life. Walk in righteousness and holiness of heart and of life. To be baptized. Enter into the waters of grace and salvation so you might rise to new life in him. And then, brothers and sisters, that victory is yours that cross is yours. Remember when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me? He said that before he even carried his cross and was crucified. And in that way, he invited us to carry our cross into victory and in life as well. That's for you and for me. It's for all the world. Let us receive his victory this day. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do come into this space and time so profoundly thankful for the transforming gift of victory. That the victory is, is not something we achieve on our own. It's not something that, that, that we have accomplished, but you accomplished it through the cross. And so we pray, oh God, that you would remind us of that, restore us in, in profound ways so that we would walk in the way that leads to life. Lord, help us to find such confidence, the confidence of David, the confidence of Peter, so that we would be cut to the heart as well. God, you are doing this amazing work. It's not just what has been done, but it's what you're doing, and so we ask, God, that we would be a part of that. We pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.